Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Mr. O'Toole, thank you for the time. What do you make of Mr. Trudeau's performance? And what's your sense of how this vaccine rollout is proceeding? Well, thanks, Roy. You know, I'm probably the first opposition leader in Canadian history that almost every day says that I want the government to succeed. Uh, I want to see the vaccines rolled out so that we can turn the corner and focus on rebuilding the economy. You talked just before me with small businesses in crisis in every corner of this country. We need the vaccines to, to get people back to work, to reopen. Everyone wants life to return to normal. When Mr. Trudeau says he's on track, you know, his own numbers from early January, he's about 10% to 15% on track of where he promised. So, you know, if my son came home with a 15% on a test, I would say that's not on track. And their slow start here, the partnership with China, that they've been two steps behind the rest of the world at every stage in this crisis. So is it, is it your sense, year? is it your sense, Mr. O'Toole, that forget about that, uh, you'll all be vaccinated if you want to be by September? I think it's going to be very, very hard to hit that goal because we have to be vaccinating by the millions per week, not by tens of thousands. And uh, obviously they're trying to go out and buy new. And he, at our request, asked Prime Minister Modi to to see if we could secure some supply from India. They're taking from the COVAX, the fund for the developing world. So he's scrambling to make up the gap that he did not negotiate and and the lack of a domestic supply. I want him to find as many as possible because I'm worried about our economy, Roy. A lot of Canadians are really worried. We can't go on forever uh, keeping people on CERB and things like this. We need to reopen. We need to get back to work. So what do you make of the Prime Minister saying that these benefit programs during the pandemic will continue? Well, he has no plan for the economy. We've had uh, no no budget for almost two years. We were already in bad situation before COVID hit. You know, jobs leaving, uh, $160 billion in investment leaving. And Mr. Trudeau's own approach, he, he likes to choose which jobs he thinks are beneficial for the Canadian economy. He doesn't like energy jobs. He doesn't like forestry. We have no softwood lumber agreement. He said Ontario needs to move past manufacturing. So if you get your hands dirty, he doesn't seem to value that. Uh, whereas the Conservatives... We want every sector and every region of the country to, to not just bounce back, to be strong, to, to mm-hmm. provide opportunity. And that's, that's going to be our focus, a relentless focus on job creation. Yeah, you know, what people are looking for, and you know this as well as I do, what they're looking for is straightforward information. They want the truth. They want to know what's going on. And they don't want this to turn into a political gamesmanship situation when it comes to this pandemic and the resultant economic chaos. But now we have, the, the, the this has suddenly arrived on the scene, and it's Mr. Trudeau's firearms legislation initiative, which would allow municipalities to, through bylaws, I don't think you can do this constitutionally, but through bylaws, determine handgun uh, ownership in, in, within their within their jurisdictions. What do you make of this particular legislation, Mr. O'Toole, and what would you do about it? Well, I think it's another case of Mr. Trudeau misleading people and actually not targeting the real issue. The real issue has been the smuggling of of firearms from the United States, Roy. Any law enforcement will say it's 80% plus of the firearms used in crime. The statistics show that. Mr. Trudeau's actually voted against a measure that we brought forward to try and stop that, and he's just removed serious sentences from people that use 
uh, a firearm in the commission of a crime. So he, he's going after hunters, farmers, and sports shooters who are not the problem. The, the terrible shooting in, in Nova Scotia that he used as this precursor to the ordering council and this new new law, though that terrible attack was perpetrated by someone. But you know, and I know that Mr. Trudeau is saying that the firearms legislation, or at least the firearms crimes, where he wants to see minimum sentence abolished, he says that that is to uh, deal with systemic racism. That has nothing to do with, if someone chooses to use a, uh, a firearm in the commission of a crime threatening violence, uh, we have to take violence and threats of violence towards a fellow citizen as the most serious crime in our criminal justice system. Um, and I will do that. I've said earlier we can have more lenient sentences for people that have uh, an addiction issue and, and may be caught with drug possession or, or nonviolent crimes. Yeah, we should have more compassion for situations like that. But when someone makes a choice, Roy, to use a firearm, to intimidate, scare, threaten, or shoot or try to kill someone, that is the most serious crime, and there needs to be serious consequences. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, I spoke earlier with the uh, Prime Minister of the government of East Turkestan in exile, and we talked about the uh, the Uyghur community and China's atrocities toward this community. Your party has moved for a motion, and it's going to be voted on on Monday, to declare China to be uh, guilty of genocide. The Prime Minister can't seem to make up his mind about whether he's going to support that. Uh, talk about that, please. It, it's pretty sad. Uh, Mr. Trudeau has talked about uh, genocide in Canada uh, with respect to Indigenous issues, but he won't face up to the fact of clear evidence of uh, rape and violence against Uyghur population and Turkic Muslims in, in China, suppression of birth rates and, and separation of children, internment camps. And we're talking millions of people through the Roy. Canada needs to send a signal. We should not be turning the other way and having the Olympics and, and acting like nothing is happening when we know that's not the case. So I hope he can show some backbone, show some leadership and vote in favor of our motion. You're doing a good job answering questions quickly. I appreciate it because we only have limited time whenever we talk. But I, uh, I have one more question for you here. What are your thoughts on the continued lockdown of Toronto? And generally, what are your thoughts on lockdowns at a time of tremendous economic stress and significantly declining COVID infection rates across Canada and internationally? Well, this is why I say every day, Roy, we need the vaccine. People are sick of the lockdown, sick of being isolated Small businesses are hanging on by a thread. I hear from them in my own riding in the Durham region uh, every day. So we need the tools to get past this. Vaccines is the most important one. I hate seeing Canada in 40th place as a G7 country. Yeah. We're slow. Mr. Trudeau is trying to suggest it'll change. Every month we're late, and he's several months late, means more lockdowns, more uh, bankruptcies of small businesses. We also need rapid tests, and he's trying to blame the provinces for his failure to get them rolled out quickly. We were six months after everyone else. That allows uh, some economic activity to be done safely, even some travel within country, other things. Uh, we need it rolled out federally at every airport, every border. Um, I was talking to Niagara right. Falls just the other day. They need that border to be safely reopened as soon as it can be done. So we need the tools like vaccine tests. Continuing lockdown, and it doesn't matter whether you're in Toronto or not, Toronto Peel, 
the continuing lockdowns announced by the Ford government of Ontario. And the consequences are, are, are really significant for small business. And we know that small business in this country is in trouble. We know that. From our conversations with Dan Kelly, the uh, president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Mr. Kelly has told us over the past year on a regular basis about the struggles of small business owners. And small business in this country employed a, just over 8 million people at the time that it was doing particularly strongly, normal times. This time, at this time, small business is in very serious trouble. Very serious trouble. Close to 200,000 small businesses may not continue. More than a million people are facing unemployment in the small business sector. And in, in the city of Toronto, the boot stays metaphorically on the throat of the small business owner because they're not allowed to open their stores for another two weeks. The medical officer of health has concerned, has concerns, and Mr. Ford, the premier of the province, has taken those concerns and extended the lockdown or the close down, the stay-at-home order, the keep your doors closed if you're a small business order, for another two weeks. Meanwhile, the box stores, the large stores are open. Meanwhile, as I pointed out in the last hour, not all of you heard that hour, I live about 30 miles from Toronto, and I went to a mall in my neighborhood, in my area, and the, the first of all, the parking lot was jammed, jammed. People just wanted to get out. And I know you're going to say, some people are going to say you shouldn't be out. Well, they are. They are. And I saw dozens, and I'm not like, hyperinflating the numbers here. I saw dozens of license plate frames with Toronto car dealers names on them. So the folks of Toronto got in their vehicles, and I live west of Toronto, so they headed west. They're just as well heading east or north. Can't go south because they'll be in the lake. But that's the reality. And so what is this doing to the small business community? It's been a brutal week. And uh, yeah. I, honestly, it is absolutely heartbreaking to, to see what's happening in the city of Toronto, the region of Peel, where businesses are now back into a lockdown at least till March the 8th uh, and potentially longer. So, uh, Dan, what is the reality? And, and I said to people in the last hour, we talked about this a bit as well, the lockdowns may happen again. We're talking about a third wave or we're hearing about threats, concerns about a third wave of COVID. So no matter where you are in the province or in the country, you could be facing lockdowns. You could be facing stay-at-home orders. You could be facing small businesses, again, being closed while their large neighbors continue to operate and, and, and earn money. And there's nothing wrong with them earning money, but not at the expense of a little guy who's the entrepreneur and who's trying to survive. So on a small business basis, how bad is it for the small business owner in Toronto? It is absolutely devastating. I mean, lockdowns have been used uh, right across, or in most provinces of Canada throughout the pandemic at various points in time. Only the Ontario government is, has, in this, at least in the second wave, used this uh, formula where they lock down the small guys and allow the big guys to remain open, which, of course, have caused a ton of anger. But look, I mean, we, there was supposed to be an opening of the Toronto and Peel economy on Monday of next week. The government has proceeded and will allow York region, just north of Toronto, to, uh, to reopen. It's actually almost exactly where I live. So if you could picture this, within five blocks of my house, one side of the street, Steeles Avenue in Toronto, for those in the GTA, 
Uh, on one side of the road, restaurants can open, salons, uh, hair salons can open uh, with limitations, uh, as well as, of course, retailers. On the other side of the road, everything has to be shut down tight. We are now going into the fourth month of the second lockdown. Retailers have been closed for 160 days in Toronto and Peel so far since the pandemic began. Restaurants for indoor dining, gyms have been closed for 220 days. How a business owner survives with lockdowns of that length, likely, I believe, to be the longest, certainly the longest in North America, possibly one of the longest lockdowns anywhere in the world outside, I think, of Argentina. Uh, and, and this is what we're facing. This is, this is what business owners are being asked to do. And the premiers you know, got their backs with ten or $20,000 grants to, uh, to help them through. That's it. So their neighbors across the street are open, as you pointed out. But what about the the person who's a small business operator and in the neighborhood, in the area, is the big store, the box store. The box store is still open, right? It, it is. Walmart, Costco, they're, they're open. They can receive customers uh, at any given point in time. Uh, if people need to go out and get a TV or a T-shirt, that's where they can go. But you can't do that at the small retailer for whatever reason. This policy has made no sense, uh, not not for a single minute. In fact, the Premier of Alberta, that uh, Jason Kenney, who used this policy at the beginning of the pandemic, as most governments did when they were racing to figure out strategies, he issued a public apology to small business owners about the incredibly terrible decision that, the, that his own government made and swore that he would never do this again by limiting... Uh, small businesses from opening at, at the same time as allowing the big guys to remain open. You know, I, I don't I don't understand what's happened to the Ford government. They've ceded control to an unelected, unelected uh, health officials in Toronto and Peel. You know, the regions I just mentioned in York and in and in Toronto, if you can believe it, York, which is open for salons, indoor dining, etc., as of Monday, has more COVID cases than Toronto. But Toronto's locked down and York will be open. That's that's the data-based, scientific-based decision-making that the province seems to be using. So you bring it up regularly, Dan, and you've responded and reacted to this decision by the Ford government. What do they say to you? You're not inconsiderable. You're the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You represent a, a huge sector of the, of the economy and the, and the business community, the small business sector and the small and medium in Canada, what is it they say to you, or do they say anything at all? Well, look, to be fair to them, as much as I've been slamming them daily in news media across the country, uh, they have at least been, remained willing to talk. Uh, they, their, their reasoning is that they have to listen to the medical offices of health. But not all medical offices of health, just some medical offices of health. And, and look, I get that they're in an awkward spot. If the Ford government didn't actually pass the lockdown, uh, renew the lockdown, uh, the cities actually, the, the, the local regions, health regions, have the power to do it themselves. So uh, the, the local government essentially could put in place the same restrictions had the province not done it. But this is a real absence of leadership. I will add that in almost every other province of the country, public health officials are reaching out to the business community, talking to them about what they need to do to to try to remain open. Bonnie Henry, the uh, chief medical officer in, in British Columbia, NDP government in British Columbia, I'll add, 
they have stayed in regular touch with the business community. And as a result, they have avoided lockdowns, uh, unlike many, many other provinces, even though at different points their COVID case count has been higher. Uh, you know, a medical officer should reach out, talk to the business community, give them some alternatives of what they can do. Business owners know that we're still dealing with a deadly pandemic. They're on board to make changes. In fact, they've spent a fortune to try to retrofit their businesses, to try to ensure that they can protect the safety of their customers, safety yeah. of their staff. But this is not fair. This is this is really unjust. Uh, and business owners are deeply, deeply angry. Before we get back to the Toronto issue and, and the fact that the lockdown continues and the small business community there is suffering and struggling, what's the national picture like? Because the last time we talked was a few weeks ago. And at the time, if I recall correctly, it was 180, was it 183,000 businesses that were in danger of closing and over a million jobs were at stake? It, your memory's good. It was, uh, uh, yeah, 183,000 uh, potential business bankruptcies. But Roy, it's 2.4 million private sector jobs that would be lost if that were to happen. That's how, that's how significant. Uh, the business failures uh, may be in the next little while and all the jobs that, that would be taken out with them. And that's, you know, I, I think one of the things that's frustrating me through the pandemic is that there are a lot of people, thank goodness, that have kept their jobs. They are able to work from home, uh, like me, uh, and and are able to do Zoom calls and don't appreciate, don't understand that there is a huge swath of society for whom that just isn't an option I mean, we'd all love to live in a world where we could go flexibly back and forth between our, our, our work, whether we do it in an office or do it at home. But, you know, you're not going to make pizzas in your house. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of businesses that do rely on face-to-face -face, uh, transactions with their client base uh, who have been locked out. So, yeah, the, the impacts are huge. Do you have any I – mean, are there other parts of the country that are doing or you think may be poised to do what – the Ford government is doing in Ontario. And, and I guess the piggyback question here is if, if in two weeks time, if on the 9th of March, there is another concern about the, uh, about the, uh, the pandemic and there's another call for an extension of the lockdown, how long can small businesses hold out in Toronto? Well, look, every day, every hour, more and more small business owners are reaching to the decision that they just can't do it, that they're, that they need to hang up their keys and shut the business forever. So each day counts, uh, every single day. It isn't the same, though, across the country. Every single other province outside of Newfoundland and Labrador right now uh, is now in the position of reopening their shuttered businesses or didn't close them to this degree in the first place. BC is one of the most open economies in the country and has been so through the entire pandemic. Atlantic Canada, most businesses across most regions have remained open, uh, to uh, and, and have been able to, to uh, make it through a little bit better than other parts of the country. And, and Dan, I, the, the news release that I saw from the CFIB a couple of days ago, small business owners are willing to make all sorts of concessions to, to stay open, including two-thirds, I believe it is, of small business owners have said, look, we're, rep we're happy to participate in rapid testing. Whatever you want, we'll do it. You know, isn't it incredible? I, I was personally surprised by the results. Six, over 60% of business owners saying that they would engage in rapid testing their employees just to stay open. That means, and, and there are some models where this could work. You could send your employees to a local pharmacy, have the tests shared with the employee, with the, the employer, uh, and as a result, try to ensure that no asymptomatic cases can be spread in your workplace. 
that's a huge new ex, uh, cost and expectation for, for workers and for employers. Employers are willing to do it, though, because they're so keen to try to stay open and keep their employees and the public safe. And, and yet, yeah. here we are, <laughs> month 11 of the pandemic, uh, and, and rapid tests are still sitting in government warehouses with some federal-provincial bun fight going on between politicians as to who should have been uh, stepping up in a greater way. What a terrible situation. Lockdown. It's, it's, a, it's terrible a real embarrassment to our country that rapid testing is not more widespread as a means of avoiding lockdowns. In the United States, they're saying they're going to have a million doses per day available. In the UK, they're, I think they're 21% of the population, 21%, I think, uh, are getting vaccinated. In Canada, well, not so much. Anyway, Canadians are not happy, not at all happy about this situation. And Ipsos polling for Global News shows 71% of Canadians are angry that Canada's falling behind some of the other countries like the U.S. and the, and the United Kingdom. Daryl Bricker is the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and uh, the author of Next, the book I believe should be in each home in this country. Read it, understand it, memorize it, and you'll know where we're headed as a country and as a society. It's one of the best books, one of the most amazing books I have ever read. Next by Daryl Bricker. So, Daryl, thank you for taking the time. And 71%, that's a big number. In this country, if you can get 71% of people to agree that today is Saturday, that's a big number. How angry are people? Well, the, the, the anger is beginning to build. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, they are looking at what's happening in other countries like the U.K. and especially the United States, and they're saying, why aren't we doing as well as that? Now, <clears throat> now at the moment, they don't really have a reason in their mind, so there's a bit of confusion, and there's an opportunity for the government to get the public back on side. But at the moment, things are not going well. So 71% of Canadians are angry um, that we're falling behind the U.S. and the U.K. If they continue to move ahead of us, as or as they continue to move ahead of us, and, and we seem to be in scramble mode, and we have confrontational realities between the Prime Minister and the Premiers, and we've talked to two Premiers, we talked to Scott Moe and Jason Kenney about that reality over the last few weeks. If the gap widens and the situation does not improve, where are those 71% numbers going? Well, they're going to go up. And, and, and the reason for that is because the public really does look at the vaccines as being the way that we get back our lives back on track. So if we're uh, not able to obtain uh, vaccines and we're not able to uh, get people vaccinated, the, uh, the view of the public is that this will just continue on and they're getting very frustrated. I mean, I've been on previously where I had to talk about uh, the degree of frustration, the degree to which people in, in a very real way are suffering in terms of their mental health from being locked up as long as uh, they've been locked up. So they're, they're at their, uh, their wits end right now. And the only way that they can see to, to, to get things back on track is if, if they uh, obtain a, back, a vaccine. Yeah, certainly the way I feel. I mean, I, I, send, I wrote an editorial commentary, um, which is redundant. It's, if you've written an editorial, you don't need to say commentary. But anyway, I did that uh, about a month and a half ago, and I just outlined my reasons why I want to be vaccinated. And I took a lot of heat in the way of emails. But now, Daryl, what I'm seeing from people is I want to be vaccinated. I want to be vaccinated. And I recognize some of the names as being against the vaccine at the time that I said I was. So 
let me try to bridge this. This reality and the 43% who believe, only 43% believe Justin Trudeau uh, and his professed timeline of having a jab available for every Canadian who wants one by September, that's helping the man who was on this program just a few minutes ago, Aaron O'Toole. Well, the longer that this goes on, if we don't uh, start believing that we're actually going to be able to deliver against those timelines, the, prim- the timelines that the prime minister has set, yeah, it's going to it's going to help the opposition. Because, uh, t- truth be told, the only issue that's really uh, confronting Canadians at this moment, the thing they're watching like hawks, uh, is uh, whether or not they're going to get a vaccine. And the way they judge it, Roy, is not necessarily based on what somebody says is going to happen, but what they actually see happening within their own communities. And right now, uh, precious few people have actually uh, had an opportunity to be vaccinated. Uh, I'm just reading the Global News story. And again, uh, the polling by Ipsos Public Affairs is exclusive for, for Global News. In fact, those, the, the skepticism of the of the Canadian people is complemented by disappointment in the vaccine rollout, quote, quoting you, Daryl. In fact, there's only about 6% say that the vaccine rollout is actually exceeding their expectations. That's not a good number, and it really speaks to where our, where our heads are at, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Uh, the only positive that you can see in the polling right now is that people are still giving the government the benefit of the doubt. So they're hoping uh, that something positive is going to be happening, but they're adjusting their thinking as to what the timelines are going to look like. So uh, increasingly people are saying, for example, uh, I don't think I'm going to be traveling this year, maybe next year. I don't think I'm going to be going back to a concert or a sporting event or going to restaurants or things like that, but maybe next year. So they're already adjusting their expectations based on what they see as the current performance. Mm There's another line, another quote from you in this story, and uh, this one I think is just bottom line so much. The government set those expectations. We didn't. Canadian people didn't. It was the government that set the expectations and the dates and the numbers of vaccines and how many would be vaccinated. So they're the ones responsible. They're trying to live up to their own promises to the Canadian people who are not forgetting the promises this time. Well, exactly. But also, uh, and the point I was also trying to make in that is uh, that um, who says, you know, September was the right date? I mean, the government just said it. I mean, they just came up with it. They had a press conference in Ottawa and said, these are our timelines. But the public's out there looking at what's happening uh, in other countries and what's being achieved in other countries. And they're saying, well, why is September acceptable? I mean, you, you kind of set up your own your own report card here. Our, our report card shows something different. We see other places doing a lot better in, in places that, you know, quite frankly, we feel that we're the equivalent of, and maybe in terms of science and, and wealth and everything else, that we may even be better than. So why, why are we supposed to wait until September to receive our vaccines? So the, the issue isn't just that the government's not living up to their own uh, their own um, uh, their, their own timelines or, or potentially could be falling behind on their own timelines. The real issue is people are saying, why are these even the timelines? Yeah, and nobody wants to be the person running around the block screaming, we're number 39. Um, well, yeah, that- exactly. And and we also know that these aren't arbitrary dates. I mean, these are time, this is an amount of time that we're expected to stay within our homes, to stay away from our families, to stay out of the economy if you're somebody who's not working or you're running a, a small business. So these are not trivial kind of communications points. These are real uh, days and months out of people's lives. Yeah. And lives are at stake. 
Daryl, what are the, you and I have talked about this, and I know we've done polling on this, and we've, we've talked about the likelihood of, of elections, and I want to refer people again back to your book, Next, which really outlines what's coming in this country, and that's why it's called Next, and it's an amazing book. Um, should we expect uh, an election this spring or the summer, or is, is that window closed for the Liberals? Well, based on the political polling that we've done, so we've not only done polling on vaccines and a whole bunch of other issues, but we've also left it at vote. We've seen that the lead of the Liberals uh, had previously has slipped away. So they only have about a three-point lead over the Conservatives. The only reason uh, that the Liberal Party would have for calling an election is if it thought it could win a majority. With these numbers, it will probably return something pretty similar to what it has right now. So there's really no point. Uh, and also, given that uh, the public is getting increasingly concerned about uh, the speed of vaccines, which will be the issue in, in, the, in the election campaign, campaign, whether the government uh, is able to go out there and, and, uh, and uh, uh, tell people that, you know, we delivered on what we said we were going to be doing, or the opposition is going to be pointing out that they didn't. There's so much up in the air right now uh, that, um, that, you know, we're quickly getting into March. You really see it uh, not really as, a, as, a, as a, a potential for having an election anytime in the short term. Mm-hmm. Uh, final question for you. If, and, and not if, the Liberals are in trouble because of this, as you point out, as their budget poll shows. Uh, but Justin Trudeau's personal approval numbers, even though they're slipping, they're still around 50%, which for any politician heading potentially into an election is not a bad number to have. Do, do, the, do the negative numbers that, that apply to the Liberals and to Justin Trudeau, do they necessarily benefit Aaron O'Toole, or are they just sort of, I don't know, um, mobile numbers? Well, at the moment, I, I would say that uh, the Prime Minister's approval level is there uh, because people are hoping that he's going to be able to pull this out. They're, they're hoping uh, that he's going to be able to lead us through uh, this issue with the vaccines, and we're, we're going to get to uh, some sort of uh, trajectory of success here. So th- there's a lot of hope in those numbers. It's not really, I would say, an evaluation of performance. And the, and the reason that you know that is you look at everything else on the issues that people care about, and you see them sliding in the wrong direction. But even the prime minister's own numbers are down. They're down by six points. As a public health physician, I've never been as concerned about the threat of COVID-19 to your health as I am now. Not at any other point in the pandemic. I will admit, the first time I heard that uh, from Dr. Davila, I sat straight up and said, what? Really? Right now, you're more afraid than at any other time in the pandemic? And I know she's talking about the variants, and I understand what she's talking about. But at the same time, our numbers are going down, and significantly going down. In the middle of January, there were projections and there was modeling that suggested in the province of Ontario, if things didn't significantly change, the daily infection count could reach 40,000. That's each and every 24 hours. Instead, it's been around 1,000. So, and I know that uh, Dr. Tam and the Public Health Agency of Canada are warning that 20,000 could be the number nationally if we don't continue to lock down. Okay, okay, let's talk about this. Let's get into this. I'm going to take some of your calls before the end of the hour. But joining us is Dr. Neil Rao, infectious disease specialist, assistant professor at the University of Toronto School of Medicine, and we talk to Dr. Rao regularly about this issue. Dr. Rao, when you heard Dr. Davila say that she's never been more afraid, what was your reaction? 
it was a bit of a here we go again, because we've had so many ominous predictions through this pandemic. We have one after another after another, and it's almost like Linus in the football. They're so far off. They're, they're 10 times off every single time. You were just citing some of the numbers. So can you believe in this time is the question. Now, there's something new. There are variants that we hear about. But the problem is that we keep having overcalls, even based on variants. If you look at what's happening in the U.K. or in Denmark, it's not actually that scary. So how do we reconcile, then, dropping infection numbers, which we see daily? Well, they're, they've dropped significantly, and now they're somewhere, talking about the province of Ontario, different provinces have different numbers, but it's around 1,000 a day. How do we reconcile dropping infection numbers with fears expressed by local, provincial, and federal public health officials that if we reopen too quickly, and I really want to know what too quickly is, the threat of a significant third wave becomes very real, and case numbers may, be, may explode. How do we reconcile this? Well, see, the issue is we have to look at what's also happened in other provinces that haven't been so restrictive. So if we look at Alberta and B.C., especially B.C., B.C. never became as restrictive as Ontario, and yet they have variants and things aren't taking off. Then you have the experience of other countries in the world where they have variants, like even Sweden, Denmark. I'll never mention Sweden, but everyone says Sweden's a disaster. But look at Denmark, and you look at the U.K., and as they relax restrictions, things are not taking off. We can't keep crediting lockdowns to the fact that things are getting better, because you have examples where they didn't fully lock down, and things haven't taken off. The other thing that we're seeing with the variants is even though the percentage of cases caused by variants is going up, the absolute number of cases continues to drop. So it's almost like the variants are replacing rather than adding to the existing problem. And so all of these ominous predictions speak as if you have one pandemic added to another. And Dr. Devilla has used that kind of language in the past few weeks, and I don't agree with it because I don't think you're having an additive problem. If you believe this is an additive problem, then, of course, you have an ominous prediction, and you justify ongoing restrictions. If you use the Theresa Tam model that was presented or by Theresa Tam yesterday, Public Health Agency of Canada, you believe we're in for a rocket ship like rising cases. But the problem is it's not really happening elsewhere in the world, and the virus should behave similarly here based on what's happening in Europe. Europe is a few weeks ahead of us. So, again, why don't we use other jurisdictions to inform us and think, instead of thinking the virus is somehow different in Canada? Even what are you expecting? places in the U.S. that have done terrible things, supposedly, are also on the downfall. Texas is on the downfall. Mm-hmm. What are you expecting? I'm expecting things are going to keep getting better in terms of numbers, but the problem is everyone will always credit restrictions for the improvements, and we're finally going to have to take stock of who did what differently and whether there was really a difference. I'm not saying we should do nothing. Releasing restrictions to a red zone as in using the Ontario sort of uh, lexicon, is not exactly turning us into Texas or Belarus, <laughs> where they've done nothing. This is still a very restrictive process, which we went through before we went into lockdown in, in Ontario, where you still have very limited capacity in restaurants, only 10 people, very few people in a business. You still have lineups outside stores so that capacity is limited. Uh, you have limited numbers of gatherings. You're, you're not going wild by releasing some restrictions. So we already had an emergency break thing set up in Ontario that can be pulled if things really take off. So I don't see why we couldn't have tried a little bit of relaxation of restrictions. It is extremely hard on businesses, and unfortunately, the, a large part of Ontario's population is affected by Dr. Devilla.
even though it's one region, it's affecting a huge population of 3 million people. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm uh, going to be speaking with uh, Dan Kelly later, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And and I'll tell you this, I was at, um, you know, I, I live in Burlington, Ontario, and I was at a, at a large mall a couple of days ago, and the numbers of cars or vehicles whose license plate um, uh, uh, frames bore the names of Toronto car dealers was amazing. So people yeah. are not staying home. People are going. Oh, channeling, total channeling going on. And th- yeah. I've never seen more traffic jams than I have in the last two weeks. Well, exactly. Without a relaxation of restrictions, I'm already seeing more and more people on the road. So what, what's, what's, your, what's your view of, of the impact of the vaccines when we get them? Well, the vaccine is a positive thing. I think we are going to protect the most vulnerable people, especially in long-term care. Will we get to the general population and find our at-risk people in time? Not for this wave, but if there is a resurgence next fall, which I anticipate there will be, probably not as bad as this time, we will have further protection. We're not going to be able to use the vaccine to bend this curve. I'm not the only expert saying this. We're too late. It's no one's fault. You could say it's someone's fault, but it's actually bad luck. We have not had enough vaccine in people's arms as the outbreak is on its own decline due to other natural forces, including seasonality and to some degree even immunity. We don't know how much it is in Canada. In the U.S. it's much more than here. But even so, there are other forces at play that are beating us to getting vaccine in people's arms. But the more we can vaccinate, the better, especially in long-term care, and the more we can get second doses. I got my second dose, lucky me, as a health care provider. The more we can do that, even better. But I don't think we can stop transmission of the virus with this vaccine this year, maybe in a future year, or maybe with different vaccine preparations. What happened 100 years ago to stop the, uh, the virulence of H1N1, the so-called Spanish flu, because it uh, had several waves, the second being the most deadly. There were no vaccines at the time that could even identify a virus, but, but it was there. Why did it decide, or why, what caused it to fade out? Was it variants that just became weaker and weaker? Was it herd immunity? Do we know? It was herd immunity. It was herd immunity, but it came with a cost. And, of course, everyone is very worried that if we, quote, let the virus rip, that we will have mass casualty. Of course, in right. 1918, there was no intensive care unit. There was no electricity. Right. Many people didn't have cars running water. People lived in crowded conditions. So we know all those things drive up cases. Even with coronavirus, People who live in high-density, lower socioeconomic situations rather than single households separated from each other, the way you would see in Burlington where you live, we know that that, that living in a high-density setting is a driver. Population density is a driver. That's why Montreal and northwestern Toronto and northeastern Toronto were hit harder. Uh, we know that's a factor in New York City, of course. So um, there are many factors at play. Herd immunity has to be explaining some of the decline, especially in the U.S., and probably to some degree here in our hard-hit areas. But there's also just a seasonal aspect about coronaviruses. There were four other coronaviruses that predated this one that had circulated year after year since 1890, we think. And they have a fall-off as you get into February, March, and April. And we have that force in our favor here. doesn't mean we can relax and forget about this, but I think it's time to start relaxing some restrictions. Just going to the, the red zone wouldn't have been the end of the world for Toronto. And I, I'm sure uh, the, uh, your next guest will, will cry you a river about the impact here. We're, we're going to have a city that has a facade of Domino's Pizza, Starbucks, and nothing else. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like small businesses have, uh, have, a, have a boot on their throats. But uh, if you were, I think maybe you, maybe you just answered this, but let me ask you it anyway. 
if you were the medical officer of health for the province of Ontario, and if in addition to that role, you had the position of Premier of Ontario, so you're wearing both hats, Dr. Rao, what would you be saying should happen? I would still leave it to the medical officers of health to make their own decisions, but I would be encouraging some relaxation of restrictions province-wide and allowing some latitude within that framework. I also would be returning to the framework that was agreed upon. As a premier, that's what I would say. And I would also tell medical officers of health that they need to follow that because that's what everyone agreed on. And we keep creating a playbook and abandoning it. That's not good. It's very confusing for people because you keep moving goalposts on people. People are waiting, expecting that if the numbers have hit X, we're going to get Y. That's not what happens. Suddenly the rules change, and that is very frustrating for the population. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.